You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Arno H.P. Reusser, who works for the Dutch Defense Intelligence and Security Service, where he was founder and former manager of that service's open source intelligence unit, and actually open source intelligence will be our topic today. Uh, Currently, he's the senior policy advisor for the Dutch Intelligence and Security Service on open source intelligence and cyber, and he also heads the Reusser Information Services Company, uh, among other things, educating uh, both businesses and actually a number of intelligence services around the country on how to do open source intelligence. We're pleased to we're pleased to welcome him here to the International Spy Museum. We're speaking to him. He's in the Hague right now. But before we get started, uh, as he's a government employee in the Netherlands, he asked me to issue this disclaimer. All answers are Mr. Reusser's own opinion based on his experience and professional judgment, and none of these answers refer to any official statement or policy either of the Dutch service for which he works or for the Dutch government. With that out of the way, Arno Reusser, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you very much. Well, as I say, our topic today is going to be open source intelligence, but I will also say that as a Dutch intelligence officer, you're a bit of a rarity for us. In fact, I think you're uh, the first we've ever had. So can we just take one minute and, and have you tell us just a very little bit about the Dutch intelligence system and what is this agency you work for? And then we'll jump into your, your real specialty, which is open source. Yeah, well, let's just hope that that is my specialty. <laughs> I've been trying to work on that specialty for the last 40 years now. And for every year that I work in this specialty, I have more questions than answers. But anyway, uh, the Dutch intelligence system we have in the, I mean, the Netherlands is a very, very small country. It's basically the size of your left-hand side finger index fingernail. Um, And we have in total, believe it or not, two intelligence services, officially two intelligence services, where the United States has, I believe, 16, theoretically. Um, and which is a defense intelligence uh, service, and we have a, a general intelligence and security service. They are, there are, in reality, of course, much more intelligence services, because uh, the police forces have their own intelligence systems as well. So in total, if you uh, count all the little bureaus and units that are, you may safely say there are about 50 or 60. But for the law, 
There is a law on intelligence services in the Netherlands for the law. There is only two, which is the Defense Intelligence and Security Service and the uh, General Intelligence and Security Service. And the General Intelligence and Security Service um, is roughly the same as the FBI and Homeland Security in the U.S. And the defense is basically uh, DIA. The Defense Intelligence Agency. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Um, there's a strict, uh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. There's a strict parliamentary control. Uh, there's a law on uh, intelligence services uh, established in 2002, uh, which clearly states that there, are only, that there are only two intelligence services, and it lists everything we are allowed to do and under which circumstances and under which rules. It also uh, lists what we are not allowed to do, and it lists all the parliamentary commissions that are there to check upon us. And there is about four or five or something uh, to which we are accountable. So uh, strongly under parliamentary and democratic control. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that as a very useful background, and I thank you for that. As I say, your specialty, and, and we'll be honest here, you're, you're one of the living experts on this, however modest you may be, is open source intelligence. Do you want to just tell our listeners, what is open source intelligence anyway? Open source intelligence is by me described as the art of information. It is a process as well as a product. And the process is matching, uh, making a, um, a perfect match, as perfect as possible match between the supply side of information and the demand side of information by using information from open sources. And open sources, in this case, is regarded as all that information that you and I can legally and ethically, on a clean way, obtain anytime, anywhere. So open source information is newspapers, television, radio, humans, all the stuff that you and I can buy. And with ethically, I mean all the information that is supposed to be open. So information that is in the open domain and was not supposed to be there, like WikiLeaks, is by me not regarded as open source information. You do not view that as open source. Precisely, because it's not supposed to be there. I mean, if you ask me to really, really dig and do a really systematic search, I can find out all kinds of little details uh, about people, about events that you will not believe. Um, But you are in a gray area where I really think that's not really open and ethical uh, information gathering anymore. So in in, in some process, it's also a a product, uh, meaning that uh, making this perfect match between the supply side and the demand side of information is intended to uh, collect information, to analyze that information, and produce intelligence, actionable intelligence. So it's not just a form of intelligence collection, it's a whole process, as you say. Uh, Yes, and I have two answers to that. And the first one is an objection to the phrase intelligence collection. You do not collect intelligence. That's impossible. You create intelligence. You make intelligence. What you collect is information. And through a process of analysis, you create intelligence. And I make a very strict uh, distinction here. And you're right in the second part. It is a complete process. It starts with uh, analyzing a question or a requirement. It starts with um, uh, trying to find out which sources are out there that may have an answer to this question. You collect all these, 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 these data and that information. You analyze the information to find out what it is 
that could be the most precise answer for our customer. You produce the intelligence, you make a report or you present the report, whatever the customer wants until the customer is satisfied. And it's the entire chain. Do you consider commercial satellite imagery to fall within the realm of open source intelligence? I mean, these days there are actually remarkably high-resolution imagery satellites that with literally the credit card in my pocket, I can have them take a picture and send it to me, a picture which, you know, 15, 20 years ago would have been classified secret or top secret. Um, Do do you consider satellite imagery uh, to fall within the open source domain? Absolutely, absolutely. You can buy it. Legally, ethically, no problem at all. Uh, you need a little bit of money, which for me as a Dutchman is, of course, a little bit of an issue, but you can buy it, anything you want, and therefore it's open source. The problem is that in order to in- interpret to interpret that information that you can, f- that you can see on an imagery picture, you need uh, analysts and experts to see what it, what's going on there. Uh, and that is a... Uh, a capability that you will not uh, frequently find in uh, amongst open source specialists. You really need imagery uh, analysts there to read the stuff. So typically it's not, not done by OSINTians, um, which is the term I use for OSINT um, workers, but it's done by a separate uh, department just because the satellite imagery is so difficult to interpret. What sorts of problems is open source intelligence good for, and what sorts of problems is it going to be less useful to? How much can this really get us? Well, um, open source information is very, very good on a strategic level where you need a broad overview of what's going on. Um, It is less good on a tactical level where you want to find the little details of what's really going on. But for a broad level, it's excellent. On the second place, you can use OSINT as a first resort because it is open. Uh, It's out there. Uh, There is a massive amount of open information available. About 80 or even 90% of all the information used in any intelligence service comes from open sources. Uh, Even Al-Qaeda says in their uh, manual on Jihad uh, that about 80% of all the information about the enemy to be found in publicly available sources. So you can use it as a first resort because it's there already. It is safe to get open source information because you don't need a spy to go there. You don't need expensive signals intelligence or whatever specialized intelligence means there are. Uh, It is cheap. It's much cheaper than any other gathering method. Uh, be fair, uh, buying a newspaper or going to a directory or uh, browsing uh, the internet or, or doing research in commercial databases is almost by definition cheaper than sending uh, people out there. Uh, and it is highly reliable because there is always an author, there's always sources mentioned in open sources, there's also always references in the back somewhere, so you can also always very, very easy judge the reliability of that information. So yes, uh, as a starting point, uh, open source uh, information is, in my humble opinion, a must. It would be stupid not to do that. However, it is only the beginning. You need all the other intelligence um, uh, disciplines to uh, complement the picture. And there is this fascinating uh, comparison with a jigsaw puzzle uh, where you uh, typically start at the edges and the sides of a puzzle to work your way in. Um, and that is exactly... Um, the 
relationship between open source information or open source intelligence as a discipline and all the other disciplines where you start with OSINT to find the corners and the sides of a problem and uh, the further you make your way inside, eventually you stop with OSINT because you can't find anymore and you need these specialists there. Are there sort of floating around legendary success stories, perhaps from history or or uh, from other services, legendary open source intelligence success stories that you could share with us? Hardly, because that's operational. Um, but to give you an idea, um, you may think of, and I'm talking a little bit slowly here because I really cannot talk about operational matters regarding our services. Certainly. But, but you have to think about... Um, Examples where um, human human intelligence uh, operators uh, were following a target, couldn't make a picture, couldn't get the real data until they found that that target is simply with its picture and its bio in a local sports magazine. There's many, many of these uh, examples uh, where somebody is uh, investigating um, the uh, drugs production in, let's say, Afghanistan which happens to be the primary drug producer in the world, uh, doing research there, and only to find that the United Nations has a, a almost identical report for free. Wonderful. <laughs> um, well, let's ask a, a somewhat broader question then, um, and not speaking with reference to anything that the, the Dutch service has done, uh, but just in general, if you were presented with, say, the question of North Korea, the very uh, epitome of a closed regime that controls its media, controls its press, uh, that doesn't allow its people to speak with foreigners to any significant extent. Does open source intelligence really have anything to, to help us with, with a problem like North Korea? Uh, that's a very interesting question because, um, because North Korea is closed, there is no other way than to use open sources. But you can't send spies in. You can't use any other means to get information from or about North Korea than uh, using open sources. And that's a very interesting example because there is some testimony uh, from former CIA workers who have written reports about this, where they explain how they, uh, by lack of access to the country, used open sources to find uh, a remarkable amount of information about North Korea. Uh, from just newspapers, from journals, from radio broadcasts, um, from people who have been there for business. Uh, because you may think that North Korea is closed, but they are not that mad. Because every country has a couple of weak spots. And one of them is money. And the other one is economy. And they all want to earn money. So if it comes down to real business, they're open, all right. <laughs> uh, and that's where you can get your information from. Uh, Iraq, for instance, uh, to change the country a little bit, because that's such a fantastic example. Many, many years ago, I believe 20 years ago or something, they uh, were suspected of building a super gun. Remember that? Mr. Yes, I do. Jerry um, and uh, the super gun uh, was, of course, uh, collected from parts bought somewhere in Europe or maybe even the United States. I don't know, but definitely Europe. Um, and they did have patents there. Uh, filed because they want to earn money, even Iraq. So, <laughs> if you know as a OSINT professional your sources and you know your information landscape, 
and you know how to build a collection plan, there are so many ways to get information, and you can get surprisingly uh, uh, much. Even from the patent office. That's fascinating. Yeah. Just just have a look at uh, the World Patent Index to see how many patents were filed by Iran. <laughs> the big fun. Uh, you have you, you, you need a, a specialist there because Iran will not do it directly. They will hire a, a patent expert to do that. And, an expert, and a patent expert will hire somebody else in another country, etc., etc., etc. That's, for instance, what Google does. Google has hundreds of patents, but they will not file them themselves. Otherwise, they give too much information away about their company. So that's not what they do. They hire somebody else to do it. So you have to dig there to do really research in those open sources. That's what an open source specialist does, research. So in the United States, at any rate, there have been some very uh, vigorous proponents of open source intelligence who have argued that it can replace most of what the American intelligence community now does. Uh, can I infer from what you said here about, for instance, your, discu your discussion of how open source can give you the, the outlines and the corner of a puzzle, uh, but not necessarily the middle, that you wouldn't go quite that far as some of those vigorous uh, enthusiasts here in the United States? I strongly oppose to that. I, I'm a strong proponent of all-source intelligence. I strongly believe that intelligence, uh, I go even uh, further than that, I strongly believe that intelligence, the art of intelligence is not limited to intelligence services, but we all do intelligence. Everybody does intelligence. The general public does intelligence too. They see things happening on the street, they read things, they see things uh, around them, they analyze the situation and decide whether they are going to call the authorities or not. That's analysis, that's intelligence. Everybody does this. So it's not limited to just one uh, discipline, it is all of us, and in my humble opinion, oceans can be the beginning or the end, but you must have all the other disciplines there as well, otherwise you will never get a complete picture. And that is the strong point of any intelligence service, that they have these different channels of information, that they have these different channels of acquiring information, and all together they can approach what's really going on. That's the fascinating stuff about working for an intelligence service. May I give you a complete example of how OSINT and classified sources get together in a practical example. Please do, Arno. Suppose that there is a problem in a country on a continent. And um, we'll call that country Quadronia. And in Quadronia, there is a big problem. There's lots of fighting, revolution going on, whatever. And we decide to uh, evacuate our embassy. We need our, our personnel out. We have 30 people there. We want them out. And the requirement for the intelligence services to deliver all the information necessary to get those people out. Who is the first one who's going in? That's probably the Air Force. They need to know which airports are there, which airfields are there, uh, where are they exactly, uh, which runways do they have, how long is the runway, how thick is the runway, how wide is the runway, can we land there? You can find that information in open sources, in Jefferson's or James or whatever source. They all have that information readily available for you. So you would say that the pilot, with all these manuals by this particular source, is happy to fly in. However, what is not in the manual is whether this runway is still in operating condition. Maybe one of the opposing forces had thrown a bomb on the runway, which you cannot find in this handbook, of course. So you need another source to find that out. Let's say uh, imagery intelligence, perhaps, to have a satellite above that country and make a picture of the runway to see if it's still in operating condition. So you give that information to the pilot. 
then he's still not happy because if he's landed, if he has is landed there, he would like to know, is there still fuel there? Can I still change money there? Can I buy food? Is it safe? Can I talk to the people there? Or are they on drugs and in, impossible to communicate with? So they may uh, want to use local informers to find out is the airfield still in complete operating condition. Then they may need local informers to um, uh, explain to them how to interact with the people there. What do you do to prevent uh, provoking them of even doing more violence? Or uh, you want informers to find out are they on drugs? Um, can we normally communicate with those people, uh, etc. Et and in this particular example, you see that all these intelligence disciplines get beautifully together to uh, produce one all-source picture for the people who have to go there. It also shows you that OSINT is the beginning, like I said earlier. It also shows you that if you stop with OSINT, you may have a little challenge. Fascinating. Uh, that That's very helpful. Um, I want to, for our basic, our last couple of questions here, go in a slightly different direction and ask you about uh, social media. Uh, how does the world of social media, of blogging, of Twitter, of uh, Facebook, uh, affect the open source intelligence business? Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, the big trends now is, and this is a little bit vague, uh, that is that the um, traditional communication channels are changing. The traditional communication pattern of people is changing. And that is, uh, has a big influence on how intelligence services should operate. And that is probably why some opponents or proponents uh, of OSINT say um, uh, that um, you can uh, postpone half of any intelligence service and let do OSINT everything. Uh, which is wrong, but it's understandable because if you see that a lot of communication is now being done in these social networks instead of traditional communication means like books or journals or conferences, because that's the way we exchange information, you now see that people uh, make uh, less and less use of books, of newspapers, of uh, television. They all want to use their internet connections. They make less and less use of email. They communicate through Facebook, they communicate through all the other social media to do anything they like. And they bypass the traditional communication channels. And that is what an intelligence service should adapt. That's where they should change. There is no longer a need to, let's say, intercept, intercept satellites, because that's not the way people communicate anymore. They communicate through the Internet, through uh, their apps on their phone. That's what they do. Um, if you look at um, countries um, and large demonstration, what people do is they don't um, uh, call each other and organize a meeting through an uh, ad in a newspaper or something, or the radios, or by mouth. They simply use their phones. Uh, in Moldova, a couple of years ago, remember the Moldova revolution a couple of years ago? Yes. Uh, according to the leaders there, it was organized by Twitter and by the phone. And the police, uh, thinking that that is very, very modern, but didn't do that. So they had no clue what's going on. And today, with your smartphone, which holds a camera with which you can make films, all you have to do as a demonstrator is to organize your demonstration through Twitter and maybe Facebook. You make your pictures with a phone. You make your films with a phone. Uh, the pictures you publish immediately on Flickr. But the films you publish immediately on YouTube. You write your blogs on your little tablet PC or maybe on your phone. I have people actually seen uh, typing articles on their phone. I have no clue how to do that. My fingers are too thick for that. 
uh, what they do, and they can publish that in a couple of minutes somewhere on the internet, uh, maybe on Facebook or whatever a forum they have. They announce everything on Twitter and bye-bye intelligence service, bye-bye traditional spies, bye-bye BBC, AP, uh, UPI, or whatever press wire agency that is, because they are too late. Have a look at what's going on in Libya, and you'll see that most of the news comes from telephones, from people who are there, and through Twitter. Well, I'm and glad it's fascinating to see how all this changes and how intelligence services have to adapt there. I'm glad you mentioned that of the, the revolutions, because a lot of people think, uh, as you were suggesting just now, that social media provides a great tool for democracy movements and for activists. And they point to phenomena like the so-called Twitter revolution in Iran. Uh, they point to what's going on in, in Libya as we record this interview. But uh, we have interviewed here several months ago a prominent analyst of social media, a man named uh, Yevgeny Morozov, who's actually argued uh, in his book that the Internet, particularly social media, uh, gives a great advantage to the intelligence and security services of authoritarian governments because, among other reasons, it makes, them easy, it makes it easy for them to identify and monitor networks of anti-government activists, that if activists are out there organizing what they do on, on Facebook and Twitter, that uh, it's trivial for the intelligence services to get those same feeds and to read those same pages, and from those they can reconstruct uh, the networks of the activists and revolutionaries who are opposing them. So Morozov argues actually that this social media revolution plays not to the advantage of activists and pro-democracy forces, but rather by empowering intelligence services, and we're talking about open source intelligence services, that it actually empowers authoritarians. How, how do you come down on that question? Uh, he has a point. My counter question would be, why is the WikiLeaks website still on air? The point is that if governments can use that to use these social networks to their benefit, then demonstrators can use it to their benefit as well, and they can hide. They can uh, create uh, false images, false identities, or whatever they like to hide a little bit further. It's a continuous game there. But he has a point. Uh, don't think when you're using social networks that you're completely private, that you're free and safe. It is being followed by governments, obviously. That's why... Uh, as you may remember from, I believe, a year ago, that um, the uh, BlackBerry uh, mobile phone was initially illegal in the Middle East because uh, the governments there were afraid that they couldn't hack the um, phone easy enough to follow what's going on because it's all encrypted on the BlackBerry. And they didn't like that. And they wanted to be sure that they can decrypt everything on that phone. And only then they allowed the BlackBerry in. So they do. And what you can see in England a couple of months ago, these terrible riots in, the, in England, in London and other big cities. Um, first, uh, in the press, you read that it was all organized by using a BlackBerry and all, all those services on that phone. Uh, and then in The Guardian, there's uh, some analysis that that is almost impossible to do. So what's going on there is simply fascinating. I want to close with one perhaps slightly provocative question. I know you're a, a Dutch officer serving and living in the Netherlands, but I imagine you have at least some acquaintance with the United States uh, intelligence business. Uh, and the United States, of course, has a reputation for being very interested in placing a great emphasis on technical intelligence. We like our satellites. We like our signals intelligence system. And also we've got quite an impressive uh, system uh, at the CIA and elsewhere for doing clandestine espionage. Um, 
do you think that the United States intelligence community is adequately exploiting open source? Open source has the disadvantage of being, as you noted, not very expensive and not very dangerous and thus not very sexy in some way. Do you think the United States is doing all it could and should be doing in this realm? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Can you want to elaborate? I mean, it's, uh, I would love to. Um, first of all, it's unfair, this question. Because it's easy to judge uh, a country that large with such an important role in world uh, peace and world safety and world security. Uh, it's a gigantically large country with lots of problems. They have dozens and dozens of intelligence services. And you go out there and make sure they all cooperate. That's almost impossible to do. But on the other hand, they do have the Open Source Center, uh, formerly the, for, the uh, Foreign Broadcast Broad Information Service. Yeah. Uh, which is, I believe, the world's best open source center. Uh, it's amazing what they have accomplished. It's amazing the services they uh, provide to the United States and international partners. Uh, and it's a big compliment to the United States. But of course, more, much more can be done. Um, and that is where these intelligence services have to adapt to uh, what's going on in the 21st century uh, in the realm of changing communication patterns and the people's intel, where people themselves uh, are much more involved in producing intelligence reports on what's going on. Uh, so much more can be done through, but it shouldn't be at, really at the expense of technical stuff. Um, in my humble opinion, there's too much emphasis on technique, where uh, I strongly think that 80% of intelligence is just human work. It's, it's all about humans and not about technique. Uh, it's the technique that, that's, that claims that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Um, you can remember imagery intelligence uh, with arrows pointing to trucks, saying that that was a weapon of mass destruction. Remember that? Uh, not a single one was found. Uh, so maybe just relying on uh, uh, technique is not the way to go. On the other hand, they also relied on sources, on people, and those weren't reliable as well. It's, it's simply, I think, stresses my point that it's about all source intel. We all have to cooperate there. Well, Arno Reutzer, you've given us much to think about. I'm going to have to go off and, and chew on this in my brain a, a little bit myself. But I did want to thank you for a really fascinating and, as I say, uh, expansive view of the intelligence business and appreciate you coming here and speaking with us at the International Spy Museum. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure and an honor, and I'll be happy to do it again. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.